All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the hell? What the fuck? What? What did I just do? What's happening? This is Mark Marin. This is my podcast. This is WTF. Thank you for, for joining us, for joining us all here this morning. I am sitting right now. I'm, I'm in transit, or I'm about to be in transit. Just wanted to get this, uh, this done before I took off, because you never know with air travel. But I'm sitting in a hotel room looking over the uh, city of Tallahassee, Florida. I'm looking out, I don't know, into what state. I don't know if it's Alabama or Georgia or, or deeper into Florida. The air and the sky is crystal clear, very lush, very green. Tallahassee is not a, a large city, so just beyond the city, it looks like nothing but woods. And... Uh, that makes me nervous, but uh, I'm here. Oh, squeaky chair. All right, sitting it. Sorry, folks, just just bear with me. Let me just get that out of my, out of the chair system. We have two guests on the show today. Well, I mean, there's the you know the traditional when I do it this way. There's the the short interview or the shorter interview and then the long interview. Today, uh, Nick Thune will be uh, here with us again. I haven't spoken to Nick in a while. He's got a special coming on soon. Uh, it's a new stand-up special, Good Guy. It's available on CISO and Amazon. Uh, you can also check out my full interview with Nick on episode 189 of WTF, and that's available on Howl. Go to Howl.fm and sign up for a premium account. Nick's a good guy. We always get pretty deep pretty quick in a specific way that I don't usually get with other guests, so uh, it was good to talk to him again. But the other guest, the longer interview today, is my old buddy, Jonathan Daniel. John Daniel and I go back, way back actually, to New York, mid-90s, uh, when he had uh, hit the wall after being in a hair band in L.A. and was in some sort of uh, horrible accounting job in the music business. And, and, and he went on to create a very big um, music management uh, company, Crush Management, where he handles, uh, you know, people like Weezer, Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, Courtney Love, uh, Sia. But uh, when I knew him, man, I know he knew what was going to happen, and it wasn't looking good. So it's a really, it's great, and we haven't talked like this probably ever. And it was, uh, it was great to see him, and great to talk to an old friend, but also great to to hear the whole story because you know, when even when you know people for for decades, almost, uh, you don't always know the whole story. So yeah, I'm going to talk to John Daniel uh, and Nick Thune today. And I'll tell you, man, if you spend, you know, a minute and a half on any social media platform, you just assume that uh, you go out into the world and everybody's yelling at each other or everybody's full of hate or everybody's like, uh, there's no possible way for us to uh, communicate with each other as people. Just nothing but uh, suspicion and contempt out there. And so and this it works my brain. I don't have the greatest personal boundaries or the ability to insulate myself emotionally that well when I take shit into my eyes. When I eat shit with my eyes, it affects my brain and fucks my heart up sometimes. So, a little paranoid. But I get down here and I'm trying to, you know, I I like to engage with the city. I check into the hotel late at night and uh, check in with the news of the day, which did not help me sleep. 
And I get up and, you know, and just uh, go find some coffee. Found some coffee. The, the city does not did not seem very uh, booming, but I might be in the downtown area. I don't know. This is the capital of Florida. And then I, you know, I'm trying to find some healthy stuff to eat because, uh, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, when you're thinking about a possible impending apocalypse and carbohydrates, it's, it's a tough place to be. You know, one of them has to give. And uh, I thought it would be the carbohydrates. I thought it would be the, uh, the shitty food, but I somehow managed to uh, find the fortitude to go out and find some decent uh, veggie food in Tallahassee. So, uh, you know, I, I, I took care of that. So I honored my fear of dying from uh, a clogged heart. <laughs> the pending apocalypse fear uh, persists. But uh, God damn it, I'm going to go out and, uh, in, and eat myself some uh, reasonable protein and some, uh, you know, not so fatty. So I got to go find some tofu in Tallahassee. Yep, there's that chair. Sorry. So I find a place online called Soul Veg, vegetarian soul food. And it looks like it's about a mile away, so I'll walk it. And I walk, and I'm looking around, and there's not a lot of people on the street, but I don't think there's a lot of people on the street in general. There's a huge college here. FSU is here, and the gig that I performed Last night is is actually at the college, part of their opening night series. Segura was on. Tom Segura was the night before me. Nice little 1,200-seater place from what I'm told. And, uh, well, so I take a walk. I go out and walk, and I come to this little strip mall. It's always weird to walk in places that are, you know, you can tell are fundamentally driving cities. Well, most cities are, I guess. But uh, you do feel a little isolated, and when you see someone walking towards you from a half a mile away, you have a lot of time to think about how that's going to go. But I walk, say hi to some people, friendly face, not from around here. How are you? And I walk to this vegetarian place, Soul Veg, and it's this great little place. And I got uh, curry tofu, brown rice, collard greens, yams, cornbread. It's awesome. Excellent food. And it was quiet. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, a little... Uh, I don't know who owns it, but there were some interesting pictures on the wall from, uh, I don't, they, they seem to be uh, from Africa, actually, I believe. And I'm just eating and having a juice. And I'm still not, you know, quite comfortable. And I'm not really sure what the temperature of the area I'm in or how things are going to go because I'm living in a bit of fear in my mind. And then over at the next table from me, you know, I see some you know older people, a little older than me, maybe in their 60s. One dude had a long gray ponytail. And, you know, down south, that could go either way in terms of uh, disposition. And I saw another older couple there, and there was a uh, woman was wearing a certain type of sandal that led me to believe that, uh, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they're, we're, we're like-minded, or at least they can give me the pulse if they're locals. And, you know, I just want to know what the you know, politics of the area were, so I know what I'm walking into and, you know, the, you know what, what, what's the general sense of the population here. I could have done this online, but why not do it hands-on? Why not just engage? So I eat and then I just walk up and I say, so you guys seem like you're, you're talking a little, little news, a little politics. You're, you're, you seem to be from around here. What's the story here in Tallahassee? And we sit there and we talk about, uh, you know, what, what Tallahassee is and what the surrounding areas are. And they tell some stories about where they're from. A couple of them are from uh, 
from Georgia, and the other, one of the guy, the uh, guy with the ponytail, is a local photographer who does some uh, amazing portrait work. And uh, it was just interesting. It was just interesting that to to kind of get out of the world of uh, you know online, you know, insanity, and out into the world of real life, and just casually uh, impose yourself on people to have a conversation about what's going on. And then I started, you know, when I was sitting there in this little, you know. Uh, soul food vegetarian restaurant in a strip mall in Tallahassee. I pulled my chair up next to some people I didn't know and just talked a little bit about the world, about the news, about politics, and it was uh, it was nice. And then I started to think like, wow, is this how we're gonna be talking? Every all of us of uh, a certain ilk, is this where we're gonna be? Just uh, kind of quietly uh, huddled in a corner, talking in a small restaurant. In a, in a strip mall in places, you know, looking at each other, going like, is it okay? Yeah, you, you okay? Can we talk here? Yeah, we can talk here. Just turn the sign on the window to close and let's have a conversation. Is this what discourse is going to be? Is that how it's going to go? That was the dark vision. But then, like, I get to the show and uh, got this local kid opening for me, Austin Mann. He did a good job. We packed the place out, 1,200 people. Did an hour and a half, uh, did, uh, you know, talked about everything that I'm feeling and everything that's funny and some things that aren't funny that I made funny. And it was a great show. And I, I think it was appreciated. I appreciated it. And uh, huh, onward we go. So I'm leaving Tallahassee today and uh, going back to L.A. for a little while. Might take a little vacation if possible. I got to check out for a while. All right, so Nick Thune. You know, we go back a bit, not that far. He's younger than me. But uh, the first conversation that we had got very into his faith. And uh, it was a unique conversation for me. And it was respectful and good. And it turned out that this little conversation we had, it went there, it kind of got there pretty quickly because we were checking in. I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a long time. But, uh, but he's a good guy, and it was, it was great to talk to him. And, and again, his stand-up special, Good Guy, is now available on CISO and Amazon, and this is me and uh, Nick Thune. It's been a long time, buddy. It's been a long time since we talked on here. <laughs> yeah, that was, I think, in your first hundred episodes. Was it? I think so, or like maybe right after. So that. much has happened. You've, you've got a beard, you got a kid. Yeah, new man. Yeah, how old is that kid? Three. How's I, that I going? I just picked him up at school. Really? Good. Yeah, he had a big... <laughs> when I picked him up, they go, hey, we do need to tell you. I'm like, oh, God. And, they go, and then I realize he's got a huge gash on his forehead. They're like, he um, was riding the car over there, and he flipped. He rolled the car? <laughs> he rolled the car, and uh, they iced it. They checked yeah. the concussion. Everything seems fine. Yeah, is he a bruiser, mm -hmm. that kid? Is he... Not really. No? No, but he... Didn't I meet him briefly? You've met him twice, I think, actually. We, you flew behind us on a flight from Austin. Uh-huh. And you said, after I, this is like, you know, a quote that I'll put on his website someday. <laughs> you said, he's actually a good kid <laughs> because he didn't cry. And I remember being pretty nervous that you were going to be pretty frustrated if he started to cry. I, it's weird, dude. Like not having kids, like I'm not a cranky guy about that shit. And it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I mean, I've had ba crying babies. Like I imagine if you live with a crying baby, it probably can really be grating. But like... I don't, I'm not one of those people that's like, ah, oh, fucking kid, first class. I just, 
I, I, you know what I don't like? People who fucking snore loud. Yeah. I can take a baby crying for an hour or two more than I can take some asshole just snoring. And that's even more vulnerable or arm and Armrest arm or people that immediately want to talk and you can tell that you've got to cut them off because it's, yeah. good, you know. I don't talk to people. I don't know if I put off the vibe, but I generally, I really haven't in years, I have not done the sort of like, we're in the air, we're talking thing. But you've had a unique experience before, I would assume, on a flight with a person sitting next you to you. You know when it happens, and it's just a weirder thing, and I've noticed it over and over again, I could not say a fucking word other than excuse me uh, to get out if I'm unfortunate enough not to have the aisle seat mm-hmm. uh, for the entire flight. And then right as we descend, literally minutes before we land, they're like, so what do you do? You know, like the conversation starts. It does there a lot. Isn't that weird? Sometimes it's right away and sometimes it's right there in the end. Right. It's so bizarre. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I was really looking forward to just like checking texts right when we land and not having to talk to you. Yeah, getting right out. I I had this moment though where I was flying from like upstate New York to Boston on a really small flight. Propellers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this woman, um, right as the plane starts to speed up, I feel her hand. It, she puts her hand on my hand. It's an elderly oh, yeah. woman. Yeah. And I look over and I just think, okay, you know, and I, yeah. I hold her hand. And then we get to the top and she said, thank you for that. Um, it's the first time I've flied since my husband died. Oh my God. Okay. And I was to like, cry. I, I think I did cry. <laughs> I think I did. But it was like, you know, that was worth it. Oh you know? my God. That was, that had a punch to it. <laughs> I'm all choked up. I kind of wish I could have that on every flight. What? Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, flying is a very vulnerable place for some people. In, in people a get drunk way. on flights. Oh no, yeah, I know. I've heard stories. I I've been fortunate lately. Knock on wood that, uh, yeah, I've, you know, travel's been pretty easy. I haven't there haven't been any incidents. I haven't mm-hmm. found myself furious. Uh, I, I, it's been okay lately. I've been paying more for comfort. And oh, definitely less interaction. That's the one thing. Like, I don't buy much. And, uh, you know, I earn a living and I don't have to worry about dependence at this point. So, like, I'll fly first. I don't give a fuck. I feel like everybody I'll... gives you most things except probably your shirt. And yeah, maybe maybe, you, maybe somebody gave you that, too. Not this shirt. Your fans love you. This pants. No, what I do is I take everything from wardrobe. Oh, like, yeah. I did four seasons of my show. If I hadn't done four seasons of my show, I would have had five shirts and two pairs of pants. I've never been able to do it until these. I just did these Dell commercials and they let me keep all of it. Dell computer? Yeah, yeah, they gave me a Dell too. Really, do people still use Dells? Yeah. What? No kidding. I guess uh, you'd be surprised. Not everyone's an artist <laughs> who lives in in, in Apple Felas. Land. Yeah. No, but like, there's definitely. I I guess it's what you. I, I've always assumed that there are some businesses that require PCs. I don't know why. Most. most. Yeah. Oh, that's the deal. I mean, I don't. I was just thinking this the other day. Somebody next to me had a Dell. Yeah. On a flight. And then I realized I don't. That's all I really see, unless I'm in like JetBlue first class, the LA to New York flight. Oh come on! Now you know you're drawing lines. You, you're telling me you don't see Macs or iPads. Not as, or a, not a lot on planes. I I, don't, I feel like I see like Samsung devices. You know, like people have like PCs, like stuff, Fire. Right. Yeah. I think I I kind of think you're right. When I mm-hmm. see people actually working on a plane, it's usually on a PC. Yeah. So you did some commercials. Yeah. A bunch. Yeah, they. Yeah, they. I mean, I think now it's been two years I've been doing them. You're the guy. I mean, I'm there. Uh, I guess I'm a what they call a celebrity spokesperson. Although I you're think, the Dell guy. I think the word celebrity is pretty. 
But do you say your name or are you just like the guy that's they in all the They said my name in the last ones. They, they, act, did? they added it to the script and I, I was talking to my friend. I was like, do you think I should say not like I don't want my name in it? Well, like, it's not like not? The, it's not like Nick Thune for nuclear energy. <laughs> no. so, yeah. Like, hey, here's you're, a reasonably priced computer. Uh, yeah, you're, you're going to get knocked down a few thanks, hipster. Nick. So you, well, they're probably uh, using your beard as yeah, the cachet. Beard, yeah. They're like, yeah, we got to, let's, let's make these uh, PCs hip. Yeah, it's the first job that I've had where I didn't walk in and they were like, do you mind shaving? Or They were like, hey, do you mind not shaving? We want to use that for our brand. So how long, when did you shoot this new special? What's it called? It's called Good Guy. Good Guy. Actually, well, here's why I text you. Because I, I don't, you, this is the second time that you met my son was at the cafe around cafe the corner. Cafe de Leche. He's a little man then. But yeah, well, he, this is what I thought was so funny is you, you know, we're in there and I was just stressing about the special because CISO had given me an offer to do it. And, oh, right. And, you know, it's that thing of like, it's something I've been working on for years and do I take this offer or wait or I don't really know much about CISO or... <laughs> And my son was back in the corner in that play yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. And you sat down with me, and the first thing you said was, "You're definitely you should do it. If yeah. somebody's going to pay you for this, do it." Yeah. And then as you were telling me this, my son dragged from that back corner a small chair. Yeah. With a juice in one hand, and set it at the table with us, <laughs> and you just were staring at him, <laughs> just kind of in awe that yeah he wanted to take a seat at the table, <laughs> dragging it like a kid in a schoolroom, just right, the right. loudest screeching noise. And then he, he he was a little man at the table. He is a polite little man. Yeah, he says I I taught him something that I shouldn't have taught him because had a steal. <laughs> <laughs> well, lying. I taught him how to lie, and then that really kind of turned. No, on the they way learned home, that on their own. He was crying. He's like, "I want to watch a, a cartoon." And I go, "Hey, how about if you stated it like this? What if you said, hey, Dad, wouldn't it be a good idea if when we got home I watched a cartoon?'" Uh huh. Yeah. And then he said that, and I was like, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Good idea, Towns. Yeah, we'll do it, <laughs> Towns." And now he does that with everything. Wouldn't it be a great idea for me to have a cookie right now? Oh, <laughs> you name his namesake. His name, yeah. yeah. Boy, I hope he. He doesn't honor that legacy, maybe creatively, well, this but is not lifestyle-wise. I was at the park in Glendale, yeah. and this guy with his daughter was like, I was like, hey, Towns, get over here. And the guy goes, your son's name is Towns? And I said, yeah. And he goes, after Towns Van Zant. I'm yeah. like, oh, here it goes. Yeah, I know. It. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And he said, well, that's crazy because I manage his estate. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, what's your email? I'll send you an unreleased song. So you're a big Towns fan? Yeah. I'm I'm just fascinated by him and some some of his history and also just his guitar his like Travis picking style and oh yeah I love that stuff yeah are you getting pretty good on the guitar I think I'm getting worse actually really well this whole special I don't play it. I I stopped playing it you know taking it on the road wait a and minute what newsflash so no guitar this one nope it and it was uh I use it for a couple minutes in the middle when I'm mocking a youth pastor kind of a bit not really mocking but well what is this little. is there is there a through line to this thing you say you worked on it for two years is it just three, stand up? three years three yeah. years it's it's two stories and then the middle is kind of a prelude to this tv show i'm writing about a church um thing where it's like what i you know kind of my thought on on hip youth pastors essentially uh -huh. because i heard this youth pastor this really famous one well, i'm not going to you know say his name but he opens a sermon up with yeah. in front of thousands of people with millions of views with the line, I'll never forget when I was five years old and I got lost at a grocery store. Have you ever felt lost? Hmm. And it just drove Did me hands go up? insane. Yes. And 
it just drove me insane that you could take this like non-memory and equate it to people with deep spiritual issues, you mm-hmm. know, of feeling lost or, you know, and I just kind of like thought like, it's just the thought of Christianity kind of having this sort of mediocre element to it when it could be so much stronger because yeah. I just think, I don't know. And it's not even ripping on that. It's just, it seems simple. It seemed like a simple thing to But it of. annoyed you. Yeah. You thought it was a, a cheap hook. Yeah. Which, uh-huh. I mean, I can, I'm sure you could kind of pull my stand-up apart and say the same no, thing. No, no, but I mean, like, you know, as we discussed in the, the last episode, you know, you're a Christian dude that, you know, at the time I talked to you last time, you were having some uh, mild crisis of faith, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, you're still engaged, apparently. Yeah. It, it, didn't, uh, it didn't push you out. Well, I did The Tonight Show last week and did the youth pastor bit, and uh-huh. the next day I... I got some, you know, it was like the most, bi- the biggest thing I'd ever done response wise and on both sides. The Tonight Show. The Christian, yeah, people that loved it and then Christians that thought I was mocking them, but then cool Christians that were like, yeah, all that stuff is so true. It's so funny, you know, like, right. And then people that don't, aren't involved with the church that kind of related to in some way. But I emailed the producer. I was like, hey, man, I, I, want, I was curious if you guys are getting any backlash. And he goes, yeah, if you mean by letters from the Christian Defamation League all morning, yeah, we are. Right. <laughs> oh, no. And I go, well, if you need to take it off YouTube, that's fine. And he's like, no, we love it. This is great. Any response is great. <laughs> really? Cool. Interesting. So it was provocative to yeah. people. But see, Christians have such a loud voice, you know, they and they... And they they will be heard, and it, and I, I respect that. I, they seem to have uh, a lot of them. Uh, there's a very uh, seemingly uh, grassroots movement of people that uh, appear to have a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> Seems that way. <laughs> well, the show that I'm writing for ABC is called. Well, we we're going to call it Holy Shit, but ABC was like, well, that's not going to happen, right? Right. Because <laughs> um, it's a workplace comedy at a church, but. They got announced in the trades, and immediately these these Christian websites like filed petitions to send Disney to change the name. They dug out like things. holy shit was filed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like they were just like you can't say holy shit. Like you know this petition, and they referenced stuff that I said in your podcast and stuff that I've even said in other podcasts. Really? Like, because I think at some podcast I I referenced this like verse in Revelation where the Lord says you know. Either you're hot or you're cold, because if you're lukewarm, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth, you know? And, right. And I said in some thing, they were like, so what kind of a Christian are you? And I was like, probably the most lukewarm Christian. Like, yeah. God probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with me, but maybe that means that he would actually maybe care more about being around me. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it seems- kind Wait, of... who are we to know? Yeah. So that that got people worked up. Yeah. They're, they're building a dossier. A guy admitting a, that he has flaws really got people worked up. Interesting. Yeah. The entire religion's based on that. Yeah, you'd think. <laughs> that's, a, that's why sin was, a, the, the, the notion of sin was invented. Yeah. Is to realize that uh, we, we cannot be perfected, we are flawed, and you have to uh, you know, keep these ones in check if you can. Yeah, and, the, and, and I guess it was... You know, it's like the same, it's a Towns Van Zant lyric and I think done over and over, but there ain't no dark until something shines. You know, it's like there is no forgiveness if there is no sin. So, because, you know, the whole progression of the special is wanting to be good, which, you know, essentially means that I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and the what, what really wanted me to be good was my son, you know, that yeah. makes you want to live longer just so you don't hurt them with your death at, right at too young of an age wow or, you were thinking that before it even came out oh yeah huh i mean i quit smoking uh-huh just ways that i could 
be a dad for longer. I right. Guess, uh-huh. know, which well, I never a... thought about before. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, in the end, it's about this doctor that um, the story of finding out that it was a boy. Yeah. He told me it was a girl. And I, I looked at the screen and said, isn't that a penis? And at a real hospital in Los Angeles, yeah. he said, if he, if he thinks, he looked at my wife and said, if he thinks that's a penis, I want to know who got you pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> he probably used that joke so many times. Yeah. I, <laughs> other uh, other comedians had insulted? gone to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only that, because I was, I, wa- I wanted a boy for some, whatever, misogynistic, bolt, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And then we went to another doctor. It's not misogynistic for a man to want a son. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. A month later, another doctor, he was like, you know, my wife had, we'd gone through so much to where she, I was so caught up in what this doctor had said. And and then turns out it is a boy. Mm-hmm. That other doctor was just an asshole. And uh-huh. he was calling the shots way too early. So you get, you had a healthy son. Yeah. And uh, and and what is, what are your primary struggles now around? Because like the last time I talked to you, which is years ago, uh, your struggles around uh, you know whether or not you're good or a good Christian were really selfish, mm-hmm. and and kind of lifestyle struggles. Mm-hmm. What 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 changed with a kid? Well, I stopped worrying about that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was a. The progression of of not caring about what people think, especially from that perspective of the church, and right, that that took a long time. But eventually, it was just like, yeah, why am I who? Why am I trying to keep on good guard, you know, or, or impression with them? Or yeah. But now it is like you know. This morning we went. To, I was telling you we went. We were going to look at houses. Yeah. And, and uh, my wife said, you know, in the mornings you're you have a tone, uh-huh. and towns ask me if you're angry sometimes. Yeah. And it's been a widely known thing in everyone in my family forever that you just kind of give me an hour in the morning. You know? Really? Yeah. I need it. I yeah. need to like- What are you feeling get when ready. you wake up? I think it's like the most depressed I feel. Oh, I really? Think, yeah. I think I feel like- Like weight, here we go again? Weight on the shoulders of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Am I doing enough? Yeah. Is there more, you know? Yeah. Um, on I, all levels. And I have really dark dreams. I think that's also the social media thing I need to stop because- you know, I kind of go down these holes and like, I just have these dreams that are just horrible. Yeah. A lot. Really? Yeah. And, uh, I went, I did see a doctor about it for a while and then every now and again, a good one will pop in. I'll feel good again. Yeah. Like surprise. This one's going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) But I do a thing where I wake up a lot in the night and then have a radically different dream again and four times in a row. Like bad ones? Yeah. Bad. Really? You know, and just things like I can't help my son. He's lost. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So just like dad's panic, dying, panic, yeah. fear, things out of your control, Nick. And I had this really bad one that I'm sure people will interpret, and this might lose my show on ABC. Who knows? <laughs> Where I walk into my childhood bathroom. Yeah. My mom is sitting on the edge of the tub, and yeah. she's distraught. And yeah. she looks at me, and she says, why, why did you do it? And that's it? And I wake up. Oh my god, <laughs> that's great! It's, it's that so, one hurts, and well, that's yeah, like once every couple of years because it's so vague. Yeah, and but you know, but you know, you did something. I've been wondering. It seemed like it's pretty bad. <laughs> it seems like, but I think that you know, if you really take dreams for what they're worth or what they're saying, it's a, you know, it. I think it's a representation of your own, you know, self doubt. I mean, like, you know, it's like almost like a, a confirming thing that, you know, here you have the woman that brought you into the world with no real other information other than like, well, what the, 
What'd you do? What's wrong? How? Why would you do? (laughs) Why would you do that? What's wrong with you? Well, and I'm so sensitive. uh, And this morning when my wife said that on the way to this first house, and we finished the first house and we get back in the car, she's like, why are you being so quiet? And I go, because you told me I'm a horrible dad. And she goes, that's not what I told you. I said, you're grumpy sometimes in the morning. Yeah, I do that too. You, you, you've interpreted it. Yeah, it's gone through, it's gone through the Nick self-hatred interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you seems just, to be getting more and more like far apart from what people are actually saying sometimes. Well, yeah, I find that too, that like, you know, my interpretation of what's being said is so informed by my own insecurities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, every time. Right. And that's, that's a problem because you know, you're not. You know, and my girlfriend's brought this up. It's like, you know, we're not having the same conversation because you're projecting all of this stuff Mm -hmm. that's coming. You know, she didn't say this, but I realize it's coming from my own ideas of who I am. Like, if they say something that reinforces my negative ideas about myself, then uh, they're part of it. Yeah, well, you. I wake up in the morning and I know that I'm grumpy and I hate it. And I'm like trying to find options for, you know, what's well, a yeah. better routine. So when she mentions that, it's like, I thought I'd fixed it. Well, <laughs> I thought, but, but why are you putting all this on yourself? I mean, isn't that, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't Jesus be picking up a little slack? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to probably get a lot of letters from the Christian defamation. League I doubt it. Podcast. No, I mean, this is, I will a, get this is an, no, but there's an open, honest conversation. I don't know what, I don't understand if any, if we talk about anything, anything we've said here, if they send emails, it's like, what are they sending emails about? But what, where is the, the practice of your faith at this point? Do you guys go to church on Sunday? No, mm. no. And, and my mother-in-law told me this summer that she wants me to pray with my son at nighttime. Yeah. And I said, that makes sense. Yeah. I should. And? And it's a pretty fun experience. Are you doing it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he says some pretty interesting stuff. He thanked God for his daddy's beard the other night. (laughs) 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 I love how every, every, the two times I've, every time I've come in here, it really goes down this interesting religious conversation, which I like. I think we did all right. I hope. I We're, think that's how we ended the last one. <laughs> I think I said last time, I was like, oh man, I'm insecure about that. Well, and you know, I don't, I mean, to name drop, but and I got a, after doing the last one, yeah. I got some really nice messages from some cool people that I just, that just, you know, I didn't know that about you. That's really cool. And But Anthony Jeselnik sent me a text that said, if all Christians like were like you, I wouldn't hate them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a devil. <laughs> Well, congratulations, man, on on having a healthy son and, you know, being okay and earning a living and the marriage still working and still working on your relationship with God. It it seemed good. Thanks, doctor. Okay, buddy. (laughs) See, that was nice. Good to see Nick. Good to have the conversation. Good that he's doing okay and that, uh, you know, his family's all right. You know, I, I don't know. It's nice to check in. It's good. It's good. Again, his uh, Nick special, Good Guy, is now available on CISO and Amazon. Now let's get to my buddy, John Daniel. So John and I lived in New York at a time back in the day, mid-90s, when uh, I was married or almost married. I met him because he was a friend of my manager's. And this guy really, you know, I, I was a little late to the party back before uh, the internet was as popular and as intense it is as it is now, and there really is no late to the party. The party is ongoing and can get pretty shitty, apparently. But uh, he filled in a lot of areas in my music education and turning me on to music. And, and, and you know, as a musician as, as well, 
you know, and you know, just telling me stuff about music that I didn't know, turning me on to a whole world of bands, but also being a good friend. Uh, and we, you know, it's not like we have lost touch, but we're not, we don't have the time we used to, and we don't really talk as much as we did. You know, hardly, we don't talk much at all, but I love the guy and it was great to talk to him about his story and about music and about, you know, his place in the music industry. Now it's pretty fascinating, smart guy. Uh, it was great to see him. And, uh, and I think you'll, I think you'll dig it. I, th- I think you'll dig the interview. This is me and, uh, Jonathan Daniel talking in the garage. All right, John. I guess what what we got to do here is we got to like. There's some gaps. <laughs> there's a there's a slight gap from uh, from when I knew you in New York, and then like I don't know, maybe you were worried about me, thought I'd slide off the grid, and then the next thing I know, you're the hugely successful music manager, and uh, and all of a sudden I was like, what? You own a, a bar? You know, like I feel like there was some sort of fifteen year gap. We can get to that, but I guess I want to establish at the beginning that you know I've known you for I guess what is it twenty years now? Yeah, that sounds about right. Does it ninety five ish? Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, it is like twenty years. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. So I've known you for like twenty years. When I met you, you were a, a washed up musician, and I and but you would you would tasted it you had yeah. tasted fame yeah you yeah when you you met me at definitely like a low <laughs> right but like but the thing that's amazing about our friendship is that at the time you know i i was sort of stuck in a rut musically in a lot of ways and like i you you taught me we'd have these yeah. discussions sort of like i don't get power pop what do, what is what is pop what i i had this blues based idea of music and I just couldn't wrap my brain around the difference. And you were like, well, there's a, a fourth chord. There's a minor chord. And then there's yeah. a B minor chord or something like that. And I was like, that's it. That's the key. Changed yeah, well, my whole life. Well, it's like a, it's a, you know, there's like the Beatles and Stones divide and you were right. definitely Stones. Right. But I liked the Beatles, but I just uh, didn't yeah, understand what right. came from them. Yeah. I understood. I remember it was like, I get Elvis Costello. I know the squeeze, but right. There was a, it was a, it was about a minor chord. Yeah. Right, it's about minor chords. It's just like a minor instead of those. You know, it, you know, it's instead of going like E to D. Yeah, you know, you would go E to C sharp minor. Right, and that, and because I was a guitar player, I was like, oh, there's a whole world out there I just don't get. <laughs> and that's when you turned me on to like Cheap Trick, and I was able to make the replacements connection and 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 categorize some of the bands I did like as pop bands. And then you know, move into that whole other world. That was because of you. Yeah. So, right, thank awesome. you for that. But let's go back because you were in the, the. I think at that time, your biggest claim to fame that anyone would know would be the band Candy. It would be the Gilby from Candy, Gilby Clark, right? That joined Guns and Roses, right? But Candy yeah. had its day, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. We had we had some moments. That's actually how we met. We met because your manager at that time, Dave was, Becky. Dave Becky was a big fan of Candy, <laughs> right? And we and that was in the '90s. So I was not married yet, but I was living with Kim. Right? That sounds right, yeah. And I was living on 16th Street, which yeah. is around the corner from you. It's three blocks. I right. was on 19th. And Becky thought, thought we should hang out. You were kind of hanging around with Becky a little bit, and you saw, you knew some of the comedy stuff, but you weren't all in. And then we met because you told me the other day, what was it? Cause uh, so It's so dark for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, there was a time, then, and I'll, I'll, I'll borrow your joke for it, but yeah. there was a time 
you know, I had had like three record deals and I had this thought that, oh, maybe music's not going to be right for me. Maybe I'm not going to be an astronaut yeah, when yeah. I grow up. And uh, a, oh. you know, a girl who liked my bands had given me this job at Sony right, uh, doing accounting work. And oh, yeah. it, it was horrifying. And and so when Becky and so I could get a discount on right. CD right. players or DVDs or something, and so Becky was like, "Oh, call my friend; he'll get you a discount." And I was like, "Oh God!" And so I think I probably gave you like I have this memory that's fairly embarrassing of me giving you like my CDs and like maybe articles I'd written, going, "Hey, I'm not the I'm not the guy that's an accountant," you know, just trying yeah. to like just buy my own way into credibility. <laughs> right, and what we, I remember going up there, the Sony building, and you came down from your office. I don't remember going up to that office, right. and you met me in the store. Right, right. And I, I think I bought one of those um, mini-disc recorders. That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, because there was like, that was what, the, instead of a cassette recorder, that's what we, right, we, we were using. That would have been something that would have been worth getting a discount on. Yeah, right, it was like $400, right, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 Also, the connection was, that we were in Hollywood at the same time. I think Yeah, definitely. That we started talking. You when I was out here doing drugs with Kennison, you were like down the street. I was I was at I was sitting in the audience while you were doing <laughs> drugs. <laughs> Watching Sam. <laughs> That's As right. I, I was backstage, you know, uh, cutting up lines for him. Because you were the band was candy. Yeah, there was, there was a big thing with like that era of music. Yeah. To go to the store, like it was like a boon of stand-up comedy. Right, it and, was all connected. Then, yeah, because of Sam, really. Yes, yeah, he was definitely like the linchpin, but Dice, right, to an extent as well. And just like there was, I mean, there were so both periods, both the '80s period and then when we hung out in the '90s with all your friends. Those are like real, like pinnacle eras of comedy. Completely different, right. Yeah, no, I and that was what I think why we started to become friends is I I knew you were sort of beat up. I was kind of beat up. We both had chicks and we needed to do the couple thing occasionally. <laughs> That's right. And you lived three blocks away. That's so right. Was, <laughs> so you and Renee would go out with me and Kim it was great because you and I could talk, they could talk, and it just it was what you were supposed to do. That's right. <laughs> so you're a bass player and a songwriter. Right. So yeah. So I grew up in Berkeley. Yeah. I was, grew up a hippie. Uh, my father was a left-wing radical. Now he's a right-wing radical. <laughs> David, what's his name? David Horowitz. David Horowitz. Yeah. So people know him, right. I remember that yeah. was compelling to me, too. Yeah. It's sort of like, how do you live with that guy? <laughs> right. Yeah, so he was, you know, he was a left-wing radical. He was the editor of Ramparts. And then he- uh, Which was a big kind of left-wing rag at the time, right? In the right. late 60s, early 70s. And then he, you know, he was a big supporter of the Black Panther Party. Right. And he had, there was a- you know, there was an episode or an incident or whatever you call it where he had uh, recommended one of his friends to be the bookkeeper and uh, they killed her. And that's what flipped him. Right. And sort of like, basically he's an idealist. Yeah. And then his ideals flip the other direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that, the, yeah, there was idealism and there was sort of like uh, the, the grand world view. And then when it came right down to to action uh you know that can get pretty scary yeah especially when what they just killed her for how that happened i think they killed her because she realized that they were running guns and drugs yeah you know because she was the bookkeeper and she was like hey wait a minute like oh and that was your dad's friend yeah and that just that was it yeah from then on out it it was the other way because i think you know i think that there was probably like a lot of 
incredible about the Black Panthers and a lot of real bad about the Black sure. Panthers. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, my girlfriend reads about it too. There was yeah, there was definitely a lot coming at them and a lot within the organization that was yeah, It's so hard like you you know, it's like being like super famous. It's like being Kim Kardashian right. but with like an idealism. So they may have started out and been like incredibly right, but as you get so famous and people are attacking you, right. it's and hard the, to know like, And also what they're happened. they're trying to, to to kill you from the inside. Yeah. They were like always being penetrated, right, by those agent provocateurs and people that oh, were starting. Yeah. So your dad, you know, came yeah. up in that craziness in, in, in the Bay Area in the 60s. Yeah. So so I grew up like that. And then when punk rock hit, I was like, oh, I want to be in a band, right? So, right. So I sold my comic books. I went to LA and New York. You were a big comic book guy? When I was 12, yeah. I sold my <laughs> Spider Man so I could buy like a bass and a keyboard. And you I, didn't know how to play. No, I didn't know anything. You knew I, don't, I don't know if I still know how to play. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, it was punk rock. So, like, seeing the Ramones and the, and the Clash and the Pistols, I was like, oh, I could do this. You, you know? didn't see them live, though. Oh, I saw all those bands, yeah, Re- in, very early In on. San Francisco? Yeah. I really? Saw, I saw the Clash as one of their first gigs in America at the Temple Beautiful in San Francisco. Yeah. Definitely, like, made me want to play music. Yeah, I saw the Ramones at the Keystone Berkeley opening for Earthquake. I saw the last Pistol show at Winterland. So yeah, I was super into it. And I went, I took my paper out money and I went to London, New York, and LA. You know, because I was like, well, I can't be a, in a punk band in Berkeley. Right. <laughs> you know. Not for the, a few more years. Yeah, not for <laughs> 10 years. If I had been 10 years later, I would have been friends with Green Day and Rancid. Right, but, right. <laughs> but this is 78, 77. Right, so. right. I went there and- uh, To where? To LA. First? To, yeah, I went to LA first. And you're like 18? No, I'm 16. Oh my God. Did you drop out of school? No, no. I was I was like, I was a good student. So I was getting a college scholarship and all this, but I knew what I wanted to do. So oh I God. went to London. It was like the summer of punk. That was incredible. New York was like terrifying. Just walking in the Bowery. Late 70s? 77. So that was it. Yeah, nothing but junkies. You know, it was, I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I went to LA and there's like a giant billboards of Warren Beatty and shampoo. I'm like, oh, I think I should be here. This thing's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I, uh, you know, I got a, I got a scholarship to UCLA, which yeah. paid for me to live. And that's, yeah, I moved to LA to be in a punk band. And then I started going to the- What were you going to the school for? to pay for me to be in the punk band. But you weren't majoring anything? Oh, I mean, sure. I made, I, I graduated. But, uh, With what? I was a good student. Yeah. You know, I was good at taking tests. So I was economics, sociology. But I yeah, think it's all bullshit majors. But it must have done something. School? No, it must have sunk in. Those seem to be, you know, relative to the guy I know. Yeah. And I didn't know any yeah. of this. I th- that probably, so you, it probably all, you know, it's all a path, right? It's so funny because you and your brother uh, are sort of like, you know, geniuses. Yeah, like, Some things. <laughs> like, you know, what did he, he invented Netscape, right? His, his, so his partner is really a genius. Oh. Um, so he's my good brother's at sort being of like friends me. with geniuses. Yeah, well, he's like, <laughs> in, or a facilitator? Sp- speak, you know, helping them, like, helping the genius come out. Right. You know, he did all right. Yeah, yeah. So my brother's wildly successful. Yeah, he's got this VC company. The, we basically do the same thing, except he has, like, 
I deal in millions and he deals in billions in the opportunities. <laughs> He's dealing with tech companies? Yeah. And you're dealing with rock and roll people, right. music people. Yeah. All right, so you go to LA, you're 17, you're you're at UCLA. I go to this club called the Starwood. Every Tuesday and Wednesday, it's punk night. Yeah. Like, you know, Darby Crash and the Bags and the Germs and Fear and these bands are playing. And I walk into the Starwood one of these nights. This is my favorite thing. I go see all, every every Tuesday and Wednesday I go. And one night I walk in and there's just Nikki Six standing there. Yeah. And I went, I want to be that guy. <laughs> Fuck just punk. Standing there be... with his hair out. I was like, wow. And he looks like Johnny Thunders. Yeah. And so I grew my hair. And that was like the start of that era of, you know. Hair it, metal? Yeah. Hair metal became like. It became such an exciting, crazy time. There. So that, so that, that was a time where punk was sort of arcing out, and and rock was redefining itself. Because I mean, like this is post Aerosmith, it's post all that shit, and these and New York Dolls, I guess. Hair metal was was well, metal and rock was like persona non grata. Right. It was. Uh, this is seventy nine when I moved to LA, so it's really just. Uh, it's. At that time in LA, what's happening is stuff like the knack. Right. And it's like post punk, very new poppy. Wave. Yeah. yeah, new wavy cars ish right. kind of stuff. So that created the power vacuum for hair metal to yeah. come in. That's right. And it, <laughs> right, because it's always an, a counter. Yeah. And, and in, in the UK, there was the British metal scene in the UK that was exciting. With Motorhead? With Motorhead and Saxon and Def Leppard ultimately came out of that. Iron Maiden. Yeah. And so you, you, you know, you could feel the underground of what metal was. And in LA, you know, Los Angeles like bastardizes stuff and makes it shinier and more right. presentable. And that's what hair metal was. So when you were coming, so you grew your hair out. Yep. And are you learning how to play bass at this point or? Yeah, definitely. Because I, I started like thinking I was a better piano player, keyboard player than I was a bass player. So yeah. I thought I was going to be a keyboard player, but it just looked a lot cooler to play bass. And, you know, it seemed easy enough. Were you playing in a punk strings. band? I had played in several punk bands, yeah. With anybody? Not anybody of consequence. Yeah, I played in, a, you know, in LA it's great because like Everywhere. there used to be this magazine called The Recycler, which I guess is what Craigslist would be now. Right. And you would just meet people in this thing. I met Mick Mars that way, you know, just people would answer ads. And that's how I met Gilby. Gilby Clark, yeah. ultimately went on to Guns N' Roses. He was my guitar player in Candy. I, I had an ad that said, I think it said something like, I want a guitar player with messy hair into David Bowie and Nick Gilder <laughs> in the suite or <laughs> something Gilder. like that. And uh, I, and yeah, and said, Gilby called. That's how I met Gilby. So, all right. So you guys are like 18, 17, 18? Yeah, 18 years old. Yeah. And He's you're 17, I'm 18. And you're growing your hair out. And, and who were the bands? When did, did you start going around to watch metal now after the punk when you decided? There really weren't metal bands. That's the thing. Is like there were, but they were just like playing out in Pasadena and Monrovia. And wasn't places. London around? Well, that was Nikki's band. That was they were just starting that pre Motley Crue. Yeah, pre Motley Crue. So that's the band that I really loved. London. London. Yeah. So they were just starting out. So they they, it, this starting. scene was was try, was pushing out. You know, like punk had receded, and I guess as a, as a live event. Or as something that people could respect, those sort of new wave bands was it kind of evolved more into a dance thing, or what? Yeah, or they weren't a live thing. They were, but it was like they were. They didn't look cool, like you know. They they had they were just not exciting, right? Like, the Knack were a good band, actually. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't look 
cool. So you're seeing that's, London, and you you get Gilby, and you guys are growing your Johnny Thunder's hair. That's right. And what you told me about how it was done at one point, I was sort of fascinated by it. Like it was a lot of spray net, right? Yeah, Aquanet. Aquanet. Yeah. There were right. different ways. Like Gilby figured out that you could take ivory soap and rub it on your hands and just go like this to your hair, and yeah. it would stand up for a long time. So it would that stick. Was, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty gross because the soap. When you sweat, when you played, the soap would get in your eyes and sting. <laughs> so you guys are all living together? Yeah, we all had a two, the four of us had a two-bedroom apartment on Palm, right below Sunset. Yeah. And Motley Crue was one block away on Clark. Yeah. And uh, so we would go to the parties at their house. But they weren't big yet either, right? Oh, no, they were just starting. They so you're nothing. all just starting. So you're- yeah. You're hanging around with you know with Motley Crue and your Candy and who else was around? I mean, all of them. I mean, GNR wasn't around yet, was they it? They weren't around yet, but Izzy was around. Izzy Stratton. We loved Izzy. Yeah, yeah, he good was, guy. He was our, great, unbelievable. Like he's your guy. Yeah, like he a was blues stones. Player. Yeah. All he, he would just listen to Exile Main Street. He had a boombox with that tape. Oh, yeah. and listen over and over. And he's a good player. He was like he was he was the right player. Right. All rhythm. Yeah, to Great balance rhythm. Slash. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Slash worked at, at that time, he was at Tower Video yeah. working. But uh, <laughs> Izzy, Izzy and Axel had a band called Hollywood Rose. Then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, met, I mean, I I booked their first gig in a, in in LA at a, at a place called Madame Wong's Chinatown, which was a Chinese restaurant. I remember that. And uh, it was the audience was basically me, Gilby, and our friend Tim P, who had a group called Flies on Fire that was really good. Yeah. And I remember watching their first gig, not, not Guns N' Roses, but, but Hollywood Rose, the first Axel gig. Right. Going, holy shit, like this guy is a superstar. You knew it? Oh, yeah. One, yeah. yeah. Just from the minute he opened his mouth, you were just like, oh. oh. When's this going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> so when does the scene start? So like, like when does the scene start coalescing? So what happens is no one will sign the bands. No one will play the records. And a couple of the bands get people to make their own records. Motley Crue got some rich investors. Yeah. Called, I think there was Alan Kaufman, I think was his name, but it said Kaufman and Kaufman on the record. Yeah. And then Quiet Riot got yeah. Pasha. Quiet Riot really blew it up. Rat got a Milton Berle's kid. Yeah. Made their record for them. So everybody had like an investor to yeah, make the record. Yeah, a patron. Yeah. Yeah. And they, but, then KLOS, which was like the classic rock station in LA, started playing these bands and the phones lit up. And then MTV- And they were local. Yeah. Yeah, they were local bands. So there was that connection, like, this is from LA. This is what's happening. That's right. And then MTV started playing Quiet Riot. And then Bang Your Head became like, you know, and Come On, Feel the Noise. And all of a sudden, Quiet Riot had sold like five million records, and every record company was in L.A. going, get me one of these. <laughs> so everybody was trying to do their thing. Yeah, everybody was like five, you know. Yeah. So and, it's, so everybody was getting signed. Re so you and Gilby, who were the other members of Candy? Uh, Kyle, who I went to high school with. Yeah. Who was my, who's my friend, and John Schubert, who... Uh, I met through a guitar player that I found in the Music Connection ad. <laughs> yeah, and where, where are those guys? So Kyle's in, uh, I talked to Kyle yesterday. He's yeah. great. He's yeah. still singing. He, he makes his own records. And he lives in uh, Massachusetts now. Uh -huh. And John is a teacher. John's the best guy ever. He's he got a, out. 
Yeah, he's a teacher in uh, Inglewood. Oh, good. Yeah. So um, I always, it's weird. I've gotten to this age where I'm thrilled when people get out. <laughs> you know, you like, know, good for you. It is like sometimes. You have the courage to get out. It is. It, there's that thing where it's like, you know, sometimes like I think about it and I'm like, wow, if I had had a hit, I'd probably still be in candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is still trying to get another hit. Well, you said that amazing thing to me too. This was the outside of you know reconfiguring my music brain. There was some conversation we had. There's a couple of great moments, and we'll get to them when we get to that period. But you, uh, you said to me, you know, you have to realize it, being an adult is realizing your limitations. <laughs> and I just remember you saying that to me. We used to have these walks, you and I, in New York. We just walk, and I tell you like how I was doing the wrong thing in every way and you'd be like yeah yeah <laughs> and then you just lay one of these little gems on me but that realizing your limitations like if you're talented like i never forgot that like it, it like it stays with me i don't know where you got it you know where i got it where dirty harry <laughs> hey, come on it's you know this famous clint eastwood speech where he goes i know what you're thinking Did yeah you fire six shots or only five right the end of that speech, he goes, a man's got to know his limitations. No shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that resonated with you so, philosophically. That speech was so important to me that I, you know, I used to love movies, so I would tape those kind of things. Yeah. And that was one of the ones I had on tape and I would listen to it. What other ones? I Oh, terrible things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely know all the words from that. Chinatown was a big one for me, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And, but when you, you tape these old things and then, you know, you tape these movies, sometimes those things just stick with you. So, all right. So, you and Gilby and these, the other two dudes, you're kicking around. You put, you put, uh, who's writing the songs? That's me. You're the so, songwriter. Yeah. So, I, uh, I think that that was, I think it was probably a mistake but uh i was definitely uh, i was very much a control freak i probably still am (laughs) and uh i definitely didn't share yeah i think i you know it's like i'm i'm glad that i'm not uh in a band in the social media age because i think i'd hate myself because of the narcissism right but at that time i was like oh yeah i'm a genius i'm gonna (laughs) write these songs and you guys are gonna play them and uh they probably would have been better. I was. I think I was good at lyrics. Yeah. But I think the songs would have been better if I had had everybody right. But me. now, like you know, as a manager, and I know that you know part of the evolution of of surviving in the music industry now is that you know you grew to respect uh, managers and producers that were hands on with the band and crafting songs and sounds. And uh, but at that time, you you were in the dark about that stuff. Yeah, I I didn't. I had no, I didn't know anyone in the music business, so I didn't know what a producer did, a manager did, a record company. I didn't know anything. Like in some respects, that was amazing because it was like there was this naivete from what we did. Yeah. Like, like if if I had known, I probably wouldn't have done half the stupid things that we did. You know, like we had like, I remember we lit the curtain, the drop curtain at the Roxy on fire because we had homemade flash pots and they went off. And like, we could have burned the place down and we probably shouldn't have done that. Right. <laughs> had the homemade flash pots. You know? Right. But I, we didn't know. We didn't know anything. Did you ever play the Roxy after that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we fortunately, like, we saw the curtain go up and, and me and Gilby stomped it out because okay. we were in the front <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before, it, uh, before it became a problem. <laughs> so who signed, who signed Candy? 
So Candy was first signed to a label called Curb Records, which is Mike Curb, who's a who's who does well in country, but he's definitely like notorious for being very tough on the deals. Yeah. And then how'd you get that guy? That guy came through Kim Fowley. You knew Kim Fowley? Kim Fowley was yes. So Kim Fowley was really who helped Candy get. He was like a notorious monster in some he, ways. He taught me the music business. Yeah, Kim Fowley did. Yeah, like he I don't know. A, I don't know. So I know so little about him other than these bits and pieces from the Runaways and his solo career was sort of odd. Correct. He's such an interesting, odd, strange person. So, so we were playing a show. So this is how I got in the music business. Yeah. So we're playing a show at Madame Wong's West. Yeah. We're like on at eleven o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Like no one cares. Yeah. And uh, the band before is this band called Tantrum that has somebody from a band that Kim produced before. So I see Kim in the elevator and I'm like, oh shit, that's Kim Fowley. How'd you know him? From what? Just from pictures in Cream Magazine of him with the Runaways. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, this is my ticket, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm going to get make this guy like me. So he looks at my shirt and I've got this super cool Bowie print. of It's like a black and red print shirt. He's, yeah. like, that's for, he's like, that's cool. He's like, I'm like, you got to come see my band. We're like- we're you know we're a cross between the Ramones and what the Monkeys or whatever I said. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "All right, kid." So he watched the band. He's like, "He's like, all right, you're doing it all wrong." He's like, "Come to my apartment, play me all your songs, and I'll tell you how to do this." And we went to his apartment till like seven in the morning. He's like, you know, he's kind of a creepy, strange guy. So yeah. we don't know what's going to happen. It's just you and Gilby, or all it's of you? It's all of us. It's the whole band. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm playing him like night, you know, every song I've ever written. And and he goes, "Okay, kid, when's your next gig?" I go, "The Troubadour." He goes, "Here's my Rolodex. Call every single person in this and put them all on the guest list." And it took us a week. We called everybody in the Rolodex. Said, "Hey, we're calling from Kim Fowley's office. You're invited to our show." We played the Troubadour. There's a line around the block. <laughs> like it's like we're the Beatles. There's like girls throwing roses at us, <laughs> taking pictures. I'm like, oh shit, it's show business, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So and so Kim was like, oh, he's like, all right, we're gonna get you a record deal. And we he started like bringing people down, and we played for Clive Davis, and you know, and just the usual really? people. Oh yeah, like by the way, like. Two months into being a band, no business playing for anybody at this He's point. Playing for one of the biggest guys yeah. in the record industry. Yeah, and at the Clive Davis showcase, Michael Lloyd, who's an A and R guy and a producer for Mike Curb Records, was there, and he goes, "Oh, I'll sign you." And he had produced Sean Cassidy and Leif Garrett, and he, we didn't see eye to eye. He wanted us to be more of a bubblegum band than yeah. we wanted to be, and so. I was like, well, we got to get out of this deal, and at, and we started building. We, you know, from that troubadour, you signed game, the deal, and you realized after, yeah, of course, because we're eighteen, we yeah. signed. Oh, it's a record deal that signed yeah. it, yeah. and then, uh, so we just started. You know, we were and we were building, and like we we had like a real thing going in L.A. Yeah, because from the troubadour show, it was like, oh, I get it, it's show business. So yeah. let's figure out how to make us feel bigger than we are all right. the time, and um. We got uh, we got a manager. We got a TV sh- deal because <laughs> it's Los Angeles. Yeah, with Orion Television yeah. wanted to make a TV show out of the band. <laughs> yeah, because we we you know we all lived together like the monkeys, and we all had like the same kind of haircut, so yeah. it seemed like a TV and, show. And and to your credit, and just by 
coincidence, none of you guys were fuck ups. Right. Yeah, that was probably our downfall. But you, we were, you, you yeah, weren't we boozers. Were, there was no junkies. Yeah, there was no. No, we were we were definitely reasonably clean. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> we right. Would, we would drink. I mean, we were we were kids too, so we would drink, but not right. You know, you, it was girly you, drinks. Right. Was, you weren't gunning for the end. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you get this TV thing too. So we get the TV thing with Orion. She goes, "Well, you need a manager," because we didn't have a manager when right. we signed a record deal, and so she brought in Howard Marks, who was managing Kiss. And he said, oh, I like you. And he's like, oh, this record deal's terrible. And I was like, yeah, I hate this record deal. And he was like, okay, I'll get you out. I'll bring Kiss's A&R guy. So then he comes, flies in from New York, and yeah. signs us. <laughs> That's all you had to do, get out of a deal? Pretty much. We bought, we, we bought our way out, but it was like relatively inexpensive it was a few thousand bucks I think. right right because i think michael because you weren't a known quantity you yeah, weren't making and, money and i think michael the, no we hadn't done anything and right. i think michael the producer was like uh i think he probably was like this kid's this kid's really full of himself i don't need this in my life right because <laughs> <laughs> you were fighting him yeah i yeah. would fight him on everything so now you're signed with the kiss guy yeah so he brings he's out, manager yeah, he's a manager. He brings Marks. A, uh, Howard Marks, yeah. and he brings Jerry Jaffe, who's a A and R guy in New York, out to see us. And Jerry, I love Jerry, and he signs us to Mercury yeah. Records, and that's that's how we got the deal for the first Candy record. First Candy record, and you go into the studio, and that's where you learn what a producer does. And we go, you know, who produced it. So, so you know, we have no idea what a producer. is. So we go. Oh, can Phil Spector or George Martin do it? <laughs> We're going on like the list of the guys that we've heard of that are producers. Right, 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 right. And uh, they're like, uh, no, no. And I'm like, well, the Jimmy Einer had done the Raspberries records and like we really liked the Raspberries. Yeah. So it was like, well, let's call Jimmy Einer. Jimmy was like, all right, I'll 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 produce it. You kids need a lot of work. Everything Jimmy said was right. Yeah. You know, we, we needed a lot of work. But again, it's. I was what was like, that process like, though? What was the learning curve on that? What, and when he said work, what did it mean to you as the the sort of bass playing leader of the band? Oh, I was so arrogant. I wasn't listening to anybody. Yeah, I was just like, we got this. Like, yeah, right. We're playing. We're playing the Roxy and the Whiskey and selling out. Like, <laughs> we, you know, we've got what the do you kids. Know? Right, we've yeah. got the kids. What do you know about getting on the radio or yeah. whatever? And. uh so I would do what he asked, like he would ask for lyric changes and things. Yeah. But uh but it was in a begrudging way. Yeah. We do the record. You like it? Uh No. Because it's like they he it because we didn't really listen to him, yeah. we didn't really make the record that he wanted us to make. Yeah. And we it wasn't as punk as we were. Right, so, but you were still drawing from it. Seemed like you know the pedigree was was pretty poppy. I mean, if you know, you're talking yeah. the raspberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we wanted to be, uh, we wanted to be a successful Ramones. Yeah, a commercially successful Ramones. Obviously, right. the Ramones are genius. Yeah, but uh, we wanted to be the Ramones that were on the radio. Right. So so what happened? So they released the record. It's pretty much crickets, except that MTV takes a liking to the video which song? i had to write the treatment whatever happened to fun oh yeah that's your big almost hit yeah, yeah. so i i had to you know because because i couldn't give up control i wrote the video treatment it's all all, all stupid shit okay and uh and the, so mtv starts playing the video and we get uh 
get some tours with Rick Springfield and Corey Hart. But because we're not like as big as Michael Jackson, we're just like, fuck this. Like, you know, kick the singer out of the band and oh, it's all kinds of stupid. But okay, so but but th- those are who you're billed with. So yeah. this is not really the world of testosterone and metal. No, because the record didn't sound like testosterone and metal. But that's not your bag yeah. anyways. No, I was I was fine with not being a metal band. Yeah. But the thing like and but one of the things that was interesting that happened where I, and it's maybe it's all of it affected like how I manage is so at that time I was I was friends with the Poison guys and I was helping them slightly. I didn't I wasn't like a big part of their thing or anything, but they were living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and I would give them some tips on how to come to LA and right. and it's real fun here and you can get a record deal. How'd you meet them? Um I met them through another band from Baltimore called the Vamps. Yeah. And uh and then they got a friend of mine and Gilby's, CC DeVille, to play guitar for them. So then that's how I became like good friends with them. And you you pulled him out to LA. Yeah, came come out to LA, meet Kim Fowley, yeah, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. You stayed and, in touch with Fowley? Uh yeah, he passed away recently. I know. But I've stayed in touch with him the whole time. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. He heckled me at South by Southwest at a panel. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um so so but one of the things that I realized that like they did much smarter than we did is they did pop music, but they put it in the guise of a metal band. Yeah. And like, we were just floating in no man's land. Like there was right. a guy who, uh, uh, the f- the college radio guy at Mercury, yeah. a guy named Jack Iskwith, who I'm still friends with, who, who's a great guy. He was the first guy to tell me the truth in the record business. Yeah. He goes, kid, I know what you are. He's like, but you're fucked. Because <laughs> you think you're Lord to the new church and yeah. this label thinks you're wham. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) That was the truth. And that's when I realized that it was like, oh, so we that's so if if we're going to stay on the labels business, that's why we started doing the Rick Springfield, Corey Hart. I was like, they think we're a pop band. Okay, we got to play ball in that world. And did you go over with those audiences? Oh, we killed. Yeah. Yeah. Because my singer was he had a great poppy voice. Which who? Kyle, yeah, it's just like it's such a nice, it's such a good pop star voice, yeah. and uh, we were and we were we were dangerous for those crowds, right? So little girls, yeah, all little girls, yeah, they loved it, <laughs> and but but you know we wanted to be, we had no patience whatsoever, so we were like, fuck this, gonna get rid of the singer, Gilby's gonna sing, <laughs> and yeah, so we we imploded ourselves for no good reason. After the first record. After the first record, yeah. And then what happens? What what does then, that look like? So then what happens is LA changes. We come back from tour and all of a sudden Guns N' Roses, it's a new scene. It's a darker scene. So like now it's it's the real hair metal thing. That's right. And so it's LA is an explosion. Yeah. And it's in, it's incredible. It's like everyone's walking around in a band, passing out flyers, and right up there on sunset. On, su- on the the strip is like all metal kids. That's where, like, that's Penelope Spears's second movie. Penelope Spears's second movie, which is Decline of Western Civilization, with the guy from Wasp in the pool. It's one of the greatest. That guy didn't turn out well. No, I no. don't think anyone in that movie turned out that well. And just but all it, those kids it too. Was, 
It was But unreal. that's the time. That is the time. So you get back and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, it was like, wow, it's it's so crazy what's happening here. So what happens is- And that's when the comedy store is cranking. The ca- comedy store is cranking. Right. And Gilby and I go, well, if we split into two bands, we'll probably get two record deals because everyone's getting a record deal. And if we stay candy, we're going to probably just like, you know, nobody, at that time, nobody, if you lost your record deal, you were kind of- persona non grata so we split into two bands and john the drummer and i became electric angels oh yeah i, I had that cd yeah and then yeah. gilby becomes kill for thrills yeah and we both get record deals right. we, we moved to new york and we get a record deal three weeks later with atlantic gilby gets a record deal with mca so yeah. it was like so yeah that was that was part two it was like the the gypsy years. <laughs> All right, so the Electric Angels comes out and does nothing. The Electric Angels comes out and does nothing. <laughs> but do, did the label get behind it? They didn't, yeah. but in their defense, not knowing what I know now, we didn't give them a record to get behind. Like, uh-huh. Labels are really good at radio. Yeah. That's their thing. Yeah. They have control over it. At that time. Yeah. It's yeah. Still, still they are. Yeah. It's still there. It, that's, that's what they're exceptional at. They're the best in the world. Like, yeah. If you really want to be on the radio, you have to be on a big label. You know, they know what hits are. They know what hits are, and they but they and they also know when to spend the money. Yeah, spend a little bit more money promoting right. a hit, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But they also have people that work at those places that are really good at at radio. And this is something you learn later. I learned that I learned that the hard way. Right. So with Electric Angels, we gave them a record that sounded like it wasn't it wasn't a metal record. It was yeah. like kind of dark and glammy. And it wasn't like a pop record. It was like, well, what do we do with this? Like, right. radio is what we do. So we did a lot of touring, and we we built up a good cult following, just like Candy did. But same thing. It was like, fuck this label. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. same implosion. All right. So Electric Angels craps out. So when do you start uh, applying the uh, know your limitations? <laughs> so that's when I start to go. Okay, maybe I'm not gonna. This Be an isn't astronaut. For me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let childhood dreams pass. Yeah, let the childhood dreams pass. Let me get a job. Let me like uh, earn some money. Yeah, and you know that job was so terrible. Like, but you had no, but you had no vision for what that would be in terms of like, how am I going to make my, how am I going to get big? Yeah, like you had to let that go because you had to start somewhere. That's right. So how do you end up in the fucking accounting department at Sony? That it was more like, well, maybe quality of life is different. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe I'm wrong about everything. Right. That maybe I shouldn't be in music. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe there's, like, I was never driven by money. Like, you were never driven by right. money. Right. It was driven by, yeah, how do I get big? Yeah. <laughs> and or how uh, do I do what I want? How do I do what I want? Yeah. And it's like, maybe, maybe I, I mean, I'm good at accounting. Like, it's easy. I do it for my band. Yeah. And it was easy, but it was such a miserable job i got bell's palsy i remember that because that's when we were friends so this is like the mid 90s and we're hanging out and you're miserable and you got me a deal on things you're teaching me about the music business we got our girlfriends we're eating italian food by your house and uh you know i'm telling you what's going on in comedy and you're like you know kind of you know uh chiming in about that and we're you know seeing because at that time it was me and louie and todd barry and nick DiPaolo. it was sort of like right around the beginning of alt comedy and a lot of things were happening for me, but that weren't happening. And then your face drops. Half your yeah. face just falls down. Yeah. And I remember we went out to dinner. I'm like, what the fuck? And you're yeah. like, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's supposed it was, to go away. It, yeah. That's like, I, it was at 
it was with you when I like first noticed it. Where like, yeah, my face dropped and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I remember when we went on one of those walks. Yeah. And uh, I went to, you go to a doctor for Bell's palsy and they're like, well, we don't know what causes it. <laughs> right. We don't know how to cure it. And right. I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Like this is- going to look is, like this, this, like a stroke yeah, guy. I yeah. felt so bad for you because yeah. you're like, I don't know. They say it probably go away. Yeah. I don't know how long. And uh, I went to an acupuncturist and the guy goes, you don't like your job. <laughs> quit your job <laughs> i was like yeah that makes sense <laughs> how did he know that <laughs> and so i was like okay i'm gonna dive back into music and i started producing things remember i produced that girl the new york loose do you remember that yeah the and um what so was I, her name bridget yeah yeah she was great and yeah. so we just i was producing things and so i was just like i'm gonna quit this job dive into music and then like new york loose happened right i'm trying to remember what she looked like she was like blonde like cool looking like a debbie harry kind of looking girl yeah yeah so, yeah so you got her a deal got as her a de as her manager no, no really no just like like you were kind of a and r -ing. yeah i was just hustling right you know and who'd you call to get that deal i just like just she was a good hustler and I was a good hustler and we just started like working everybody in the business. Right. And then once that happened, I got that job at Fiction. Right. That was the guy from the Cure, right? The, guy, the manager Chris from Chris Perry, the Cure's Chris, manager. He that's got right. he he set you up in an office in the BMG building. That's exactly right. In New York, and you were just sort of like doing his whatever he needed, but you had a lot of free time. I had a lot of free time. To, to, and you were, that was the amazing thing. It's like, you never could really tell me exactly what you did for him, but this is his rug. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Cause he, <laughs> right. Cause he left his New York apartment. It was like, you just take whatever you, like, need. you need a rug and I'm like, I'll take that. This is the same rug, dude. So Chris Perry, yeah, he's, he's my hero essentially because he's the one who showed me how to do it all. So he was he was in a band from New Zealand called The Formula uh -huh. when he was a kid. Moved yeah. to London. He had a big hit in New Zealand, moved to London. The band stiffed. He became an A&R guy. He's the guy in the great rock and roll swindle yeah. that gives the Pistols the demo money and then they sign with somebody else. That's him. Yeah. And then he signed the Jam and he produced the Jam albums and he became... And then he found The Cure and he quit his job as an A&R guy and became The Cure's manager. Who was the A&R for? Uh, EMI? Polydor. Polydor. Yeah. See, like, you were the guy who taught me what A&R is. I know any of this yeah. shit. And, like, A&R people, they're the guys that sign the guys for the labels, and that's a big money game. Yeah, that's If right. you're good at it. So that's your right. guy, what's his name again? Chris Perry. Chris Perry is now the manager of The Cure, but by the time you meet him, The Cure is, like, already huge. Huge. They're doing, like- They're almost done. Yeah. And in he, a way. So he was, like, by that time, he had moved on- to doing radio, he he built a radio uh, station in the UK called XFM. Right, and he but he just showed me like that the music business it's it's what you make of it. It's kind of like what I did when I was in a band. Only I'm not in the band anymore, so like I can do it with different bands, and it's it's just like it really is whatever you want it to be There's right no but rules. oh i remember the, the one thing that that kind of blew your mind when you were at sony the thing that i think started giving you the bell's palsy was yeah. that these artists were not picking up their residual checks oh yeah that was crazy so, so yeah, they, yeah. they would just be like what would you ben say morrison was like eight hundred and sixty thousand dollars. yeah 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 <laughs> and and they're not gonna find him <laughs> yeah and so that yeah i think that was part of the sort of like holy shit yep yep this yeah is 
there's like all this money here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So he's like, so you can do whatever you want in the music business when you have that that zone to sort of produce, manage, A&R. Like, you, you know, it's sort it's of whatever. once you're in the house, you can kind of do whatever. Yeah. And it's more like you do what you think is right rather than like what you think you're but supposed to do. But what did he expect out of you? He just wanted me to find bands and and or so. find writers and sign them to publishing deals, and which I did for him. And we had like we had a bunch of hits just to have as a manager. You were you were sort of doing a publisher. Some... He wanted me to do it for him as a publisher. Okay. So sign like the songwriting part of it. Right. And you signed people. Yeah. 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 And we had a, we had a good run. Who like with who? We did. Uh, I had a. Um, the first hit I had was Primitive Radio Gods. No, I remember that. Right? It's like listening to you, like the yeah, first yeah. hit I had. Yeah. You, you got what was it? You were sitting there and you told me you've got some unsolicited. Yeah, it was an unsolicited just came demo. to the office and like I'm listening to it and the kids like, oh, like I sent that in years ago and I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm doing. So, it's but a, then it became a giant hit with the BB King sample. Yeah, with the BB King sample. I've been downhearted, baby. Been downhearted, baby. Right, and that yeah. was you're like, I'm going to make this a hit, and that was yeah. the first time you the first did that. Hit. That was the first hit. And yeah. how'd you do that? You just took the... Got it in the Cable Guy soundtrack. And from the Cable Guy soundtrack, it just took off. Like radio stations started playing it and then... So you, the publishing, part of the publishing world, which I remember now that you were involved with, was getting these smaller bands that, you know, had been around for a while, these deals to just have their music on shows that wasn't... Because I know a guy who does that for my show. That's right. still a route to go. Yep. Is that they? Because people don't want they don't have the money to pay for hits. That's right. From the history of music. That's right. Because it's ridiculous. Right. So there's all these hungry bands around that if you go, you'll get residuals and they'll give you ten thousand up front. That's right. Yeah. If you let them do it, put the sh the song on the show. So you got on the cable guy, and yeah. then it became huge. Yeah. And then it became a giant hit, and then uh. Now you're a hit maker. Now I'm a hit maker. So then I <laughs> I find this kid Jive Jones. I put him with a writer to write for because somebody's developing a new girl and they need a girl song and they write candy. I give it to Mandy Moore's A&R guy and it becomes a giant hit for Mandy Moore and launches her. So, And what's your cut on that? Uh, we get 25%. Oh, this is when you're still at the BMG building. Yeah, this is in the BMG building. So like things are going well in the BMG building. Yeah. Like, I'm doing these things for him. and uh, but like, But then Napster hits. And when Napster hit, that's when I started because you were still in New York then remember I got I was like oh the internet's gonna change everything and like you'll be able to make your own records and all this stuff right you saw that coming and then also there was this I remember there was a time where you were actively scouting I can't remember for what reason remember because you remember when CMJ came yeah. and there you know you'd always have all those records and you're always running around doing stuff you you weren't managing yet were you no that's when I was I was but I was like I had this thing in my head where I was going to be able to do it the way I would have done it as I was in a band, like do it yourself, basically, right. because of the internet. Okay, so, so that, that was, was around that time. time. Oh, That's I right. get it. So you, you saw this coming. Yeah, so when Napster hit, it just changed everything for me. It was like, oh my God, it's like the whole business is going to change. Broke open. Yeah. And at that time, was that when you developed the relationship with Don Arden? I remember that was a, a big like yes. life changer. Yeah, that was crazy. I'm very glad that I didn't do anything with him because like but how did that happen don guy. arden managed black sabbath his his daughter is sharon osborne yeah. but he also managed like jerry Lee ELO, lewis and ELO, ELO. yeah he was big big, big british big, 
Huge. Manager. Yeah. So old school. Very old school. Right. And at that time, he was probably past his his. Right. I remember that because he day. like he, I don't remember but, how he reached out to you. What was that? Well, those guys, the older guys like Seymour Stein and Don, they they took a liking. You know, when I started like looking for bands and saying I was going to do things on the internet, because there weren't very many people saying that at right. that time. These these older guys that were really good at their thing were like. This, I don't know what the internet is, but this kid's talking about something. And maybe there's something there. So they That's were looking to be them. part of it. Yeah. So okay. So, so how does Don Arden reach out to you? Because I remember, didn't you go to London? Yeah. And hang out with yeah. him. So Don came to me through uh, a guy who worked at Sony. Yeah. Named Greg McBowman. Yeah. Who was like a he was a business guy at yeah. Sony, but he knew Don. Yeah. And through because Don had a deal with Sony, and he was like, oh, you. You should meet this young guy who likes the internet. <laughs> so that's how. That's and what how what was your experience meeting him? Because I remember it was pretty oh, impactful. He, yeah, I mean, he was an amazing character. Yeah, <laughs> you know. What did he learn from him? He, uh, you know, it's the same thing. It's sort of like if you if you create the character of what you are, you know, again, like it's show business. Yeah, you can make stuff happen. You just you can't th- like everything like the idea of having records that are going to be huge is is a ridiculous idea yeah but it's not impossible right it's just improbable yeah so the difference between that is what i learned from guys like don and seymour and chris it's just like oh yeah like everyone's it's really an even playing field right on what the song that's going to be the song of the summer is yeah you just have to like get a song that you believe in and then try and will it you know figure out how to get it through right and that's what you learn from those guys. Yeah. You know, because the record business was started as like a street hustler business. Right. They're all street hustlers. Right. In, so, in the best of ways. And you, you know? were the guy that had the foresight to start to hustle the internet. I was like, I was definitely one of the early, I was definitely early in that process. Certainly like from coming from an A&R angle, like a, other people were hustling the internet, but they were more looking at it in terms of like security and stuff that was more businessy. Yeah. I was the I was early on going like this is going to be a new way to market things. So, when did you become a manager? So, at the end of uh the 90s, Chris was like Chris that owned the BMG thing. He was like, "I think I'm going to retire. I'll give you some money." He gave me like 30 grand or something, which at that time to me was a lot of money. Yeah. And he's like, "You should start you should do what you want to do with this internet thing. Like you don't need Don Arden or, you know, any yeah. of these guys. Just do it yourself. Yeah. It's like you don't need any money. If what you're telling me is right, you don't need any money. <laughs> yeah. And he was right. So yeah. I, that's how I started. It was is like I started with a little bit of money and an office in Soho and some interns. <laughs> and uh I started looking for do it yourself people. And the first artist was a was still my artist is one of my best friends butch walker yeah and um he was just like me only way more talented yeah and i was like oh this is gonna be easy i know what to do with him yeah i'll just do what i would do with me he's a producer he he's an artist and he's a big producer he's done taylor swift katie perry mm-hmm. uh avril lavigne pink like you know but and also many other like cool things like uh um Frank Turner and Brian Fallon and and uh, Weezer and his, so he's done a mix of all kinds of music. But when you met him, he was what? He was a, a singer songwriter. 
uh-huh. which he still is. But like in my mind, you know, thinking like how I would think for me, all these bands thought he was great. So I was like, oh, you should produce these bands. And it started out with small bands like Bowling for Soup and yeah, and SR71. And yeah. he had hits with those, which led to Simple Plan, which he had a hit with, which led to Avril, which led to Pink, which led to Katie. And now so it's just like, yeah. Bigger than big. Yeah. And it's, uh, so, so he was my first guy and really like a super, uh, that was like, we can do this because yeah. he took a real chance on me because he had a record deal. I didn't have any clients. Like yeah. there was no reason for to let me manage him, <laughs> but he believed my my hustle. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we've had a we've had a really good run. Yeah, and then and then who was the next client? Do you remember my friend Pablo, who was yeah. an A&R guy with Benji at Columbia? Yep. So Pablo is he was he was a, always a great A and R guy. He was yeah. always early on things, and uh, he was like, you know, there's this kind of music called emo music yeah like it's like kids really like it and yeah. it's all over the internet yeah so i started i was like all right so i started looking for so is anyone things. making money there are cds still selling at this point cds are still selling yeah. okay there's no no one everyone's blind to the fact that 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 part of the business is going to be obliterated right everybody's just like yeah whatever it's like a little fad that kids like but we don't care about it right so I go, I find these emo bands on mp3.com. There's a whole scene of them. And yeah. I sign a bunch of them yeah. because there's nobody in the music business doing it. Yeah. And one of those bands is, is Fall Out Boy. Yeah. And Fall Out Boy, if not for Fall Out Boy, I'm probably not a successful right. manager or certainly not as successful as I am. Right. Um, Pete from Fall Out Boy is like a no joke marketing. He's me, but better yeah <laughs> and uh he's no joke at marketing mm -hmm. but he has that ambition that i had yeah and then he has a singer patrick who's so talented yeah and so we built this thing uh oh and one more key thing happens at that time i always thought i needed a partner yeah in my thing like yeah. somebody who was completely different than me you didn't Not call like, me i didn't get the call i don't think you would have been the right guy <laughs> i don't think you would have wanted to do it that's probably and right. i met i met bob mcclin who's mm -hmm. still my partner and he and i was like oh, i have this band fallout boy can you like get them some tours and do that stuff and he carried them on his back and they became this giant band he was their road manager no he he was like i would say he was like he worked for me except i couldn't pay him because i had no money so right he was just like, you know, he had the right spirit. He was like, yeah, whatever, I'll look after it. Yeah. And then uh, that's how we sort of built the company as we built that band or he really built them on on tour. So you took these kids off the online world, uh, you know, basically out of, you know, community boards or what was what would have been Reddit at the time the, and, and realized right. that they had a following of kids who were off the grid because they were now alienated from mainstream music and they That's had their right. own thing. And you realized at that time that the the nuts and bolts of the game w always were, but now more than ever, uh, was going to be touring. That's right. And merchandise. Yeah and, yeah. and and really just like, but building community. Like if you have fans and you have the right song yeah. and the right singer, 
then you can be big. Those are like the three things, right? Yeah, because that's why when we finally reconnected, you're like, yeah, I'm huge. <laughs> I mean, you didn't say that, yeah. but you were like, I got these huge bands, Fall yeah. Out Boy and Panic at the Disco. I'm so, like, who? So Pete found Panic at the Disco. Pete was like, yo, I found this other band, Panic <laughs> at the Disco. And it was like, it sounds like you. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, <laughs> they're cooler than me. He's like, just, he's like, we should sign them. They'll be big. And so we- So Pete was the A&R guy on that? Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so- we bring sign Panic at the Disco. We make a record for like ten grand, and we hear the record. Bob and I hear the record. And we're like, "Holy shit! Like this will <laughs> probably sell fifty thousand records." We put the record out, and it just goes batshit crazy. Like <laughs> yeah. kids flip out. We we ended up selling three million of the record we made for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> so now the record so, company thinks you're a genius. Yeah, yeah. So now it's like, okay, these guys. <laughs> We don't know what this emo thing is, but these guys do. <laughs> and so we've got the he's got these bands and they're like, you know, they're selling out Madison Square Garden sized places. It's pretty pretty nuts. So, so so at that time you've got Butch and these two bands. These two bands and we have a couple more of these kind of emo bands. We yeah. have a we have a hip hop one called Gym Class Heroes that Pete found that's also selling like massive hits. Same thing. So that was so, your wave. So yeah, so we're the kings of emo. Right. So that we do that for like a few years. Now, when do you start like, you know, using your experience and also your pop sensibility to guide these guys? I mean, what's that I relationship? That, that's that definitely started just as it gets better. Like the the more I do this, the better I am with with artists. But that that started from the from day one. I think yeah. there's like a because both Bob and I we were in bands, we can speak a common language. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense for people, yeah. you know, for the bands. They're right. like, oh, when they say, you know, if they go, hey, you might want to like repeat that part. Right. It or, comes from the, uh, a sound. Like, or like we need a hook. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah put this or song needs a post chorus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Put this at the beginning. Right. Right. Yeah. So, like, we, that, we, I mean, there was, you know, there's a period where, like, in a, three-week period both of them were on the cover of rolling stone so we're just like riding a wave right and uh but and that scene was very much like you know it's a scene like seattle or the hair band scene i'm like you know i'm a i'm i'm a paranoid jew so i'm like what happens when this ends (laughs) like we're a really only emo so i start thinking like okay the record what do i know well like, you have now you have some cachet now i have some yeah but but it's still like it's very specific right so i'm like well what do i know about the record business what have i thought that that i could do different in a contrarian way so i was like well the record business abandons artists before the public does yeah so if we could find some artists that were successful for a but record then fell or two. off right. yeah and just have one more hit, they'd be right back in it. Right. And so I that's when I met uh, my friend Sam Hollander, who's a writer-producer who had worked with our bands, um, said, you should meet Pat from Train. Yeah. And I was like- I remember the first Train record. Yeah. You remember Drops of Jupiter and Meet Virginia, and they were big. And then they, they had five years where they were not big. So I was like, you know- I don't know if Train goes with my stuff. He's like, you'll like Pat. He's very funny. He's very dark. Yeah. And he's, what I didn't know is he's also very ambitious and very talented. Yeah. So I meet Pat and I like him because he's funny and dark. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, he's like, well, you listen to my, you don't do bands like me. It's like, no, I don't. But 
He's like, well, would you listen to my songs? And he plays me. I go, how many do you have? He goes, 80. I go, if I take a minute, but yeah. So we sit down and I'm listening to his songs and he's got these songs. He's got this one, Hey Soul Sister. I'm like, well, what's wrong with this? He's like, well, the label doesn't like it and the and the producer doesn't like it. I was like, all right, I'll be your manager. But my first two jobs are I'm going to fire the label and fire the producer. This song is a hit. Yeah. And uh, you know, there was another song called Marry Me that I thought was a hit. And we make a record, and Hey Soul Sister became the biggest hit. It was the biggest hit of the year that year. It sold, I think it sold like 9 million copies at uh-huh. this point. And now we've had like maybe 10 hits with, with Train. We have another one that just came out. Yeah. And so that was like, oh, okay, I get how this is. And so that's how I met Sia. Same thing. It's like, well, she had a career. She never had a hit, yeah. but she had like a little indie career. Yeah. She was in Bad Place. And... uh I didn't know if I could manage Sia because she wasn't pop. Yeah. You know, she wasn't what I knew and she was female and I know bands. So I was like, well, I don't know if I'm the right manager for you, but like, I know how to get you out of the bad position you're in. Yeah. Because she was in like a deal she didn't like and she was miserable. She was yeah. just like sick and, and she she thought she was an alcoholic and maybe she was or wasn't, I don't know, because I wasn't friends with her then. Yeah. And we just became friends. And I was like, oh my God, Like this girl is like the most talented person I've ever met. <laughs> I was like, she can do pop music. And so we started like figuring out how to do pop music. And once she figured it out, like, you know, she's no joke. <laughs> and she's also like, I think she's one of the most successful pop writers in the game. Wow. <laughs> maybe It's maybe like the most successful female. Yeah. But... One of the things that we just that just happened to her this year, which like it makes me like it's it's you know like money and numbers on a chart they're just like measures of things, but what's super great about this one is she's the f- one of the only women ever f- that's forty years old that's had a number one record on a road. It's Cher, Madonna, and Sia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty like in yeah a, in a in a game where they tell you that you know. You can't age women. That's pretty great. cool. Yeah, that is cool. You know the the thing about the 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 company, and uh-huh. it's like it really is like a team. We manage like a band. I've right. got like twenty five people that work there. Crush management. Crush management. Mm-hmm. All of them are like everyone there is so talented that I don't have to be a control freak. Right. They do. You know, like Dan Kruchka, who runs marketing, is so much better than I am at marketing. Yeah. It's so great to have that. Yeah. You know, and, and we have that and we've got, you know, radio people. We've got this two two guys, Eric does pop radio and Capone does alternative. They're like animals. They yeah. just don't know. They won't they won't stop until the the records are hit. So uh-huh. it's it's awesome. It's and you've a, got an office here in LA and and in New York. We have New York and LA. It's all it's all crazy. No London. No, no London yet. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> I always say, like, if I have a great song, my job is easy. And if I have a good song, my job's impossible. Yeah. And it's really what it is. You have to keep raising the bar on yourself. Yeah. And, you know, like, great artists, no matter what kind of artists, they're always in competition with themselves, right? Yeah. I think when you're, I think one of the things that both of us had when we were younger it's just like we'd be we'd be in competition with others, yeah, and we'd be envious of others, right? But when you're really good, you're just 
you drop all right. that stuff. Yeah, you, you don't even think about it anymore. Yeah. Like, I'm very surprised that happened to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a couple that if you give me a minute... <laughs> <laughs> I can I can get there pretty quickly, but it's it's not guiding my disposition. Yeah, yeah. And when you can let go of that, it really helps the success. Well, well, right. But usually, the only way you can let go of it, you, you know, without you know intense vigilance, is if you find some success. Yeah, yeah sadly, that's right. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you can be consumed with that shit, and it can kill you. Yeah, and it can end you. Oh, yeah. If you're lucky enough to get a little success, it starts to ease up. That's right. You know, but that's not a guarantee. The truth is, is like, it's great when your friends are successful. It's yeah. way better. It's yeah. like, you know, you you brought me to a poker game. Right. It's definitely like- At Eddie Brills? At Eddie Brills. Yeah. The, during the, during like my lowest period when, you know, the Bell's Ballsy days, we used to play poker with- Right. And pretty much everyone in that poker game is huge yeah. now. It was Jeff like, Ross. It was like, but Louie and Sarah Silverman and yeah. Dave Cross, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like all of them became yeah. like wildly successful. Right. And it's like. Long before well, me. So I didn't play, <laughs> I didn't stay in the game. You long. didn't play poker enough. But, I always lost. I was bad at it. But, but the thing is, it's like. And Louie immortalized that game in his show. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But it's just like, it's, it's. Like having that is much more fun than if, you know, as a memory, yeah. than if I play poker with your friends and none of them yeah. got successful. Sure. <laughs> I yeah. play poker with some comedians. Yeah, yeah, right, but right. But now it's what like happened an to those guys? story. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there was, you definitely got that feeling in whatever business you were in that, you know, it was a smaller world in a way back then, certainly in co comedy. Right. Uh, you know, and you just didn't think about you know, that that was the next generation that would become great and, and then really hold on to it. Now, like getting into the current day, you know, it, along the same lines that, you know, you took on train, you've taken on Weezer and Courtney Love, kind of? Weezer, Courtney, yeah. The the newest one we have is Lord, which right. I'm super excited about. But she wasn't a so husband. No, that's, well, that's what I'm, that's why I'm saying the newest one, because this is the first time anyone's given me something that was currently successful to work on. So that's how that that's exciting. I, <laughs> if you ask her, she'll say I was the only manager without a publicist. <laughs> I think she just like, she, oh, she was met, looking. She met a bunch of people mm -hmm. and, she, you know, and uh, I think I was probably less. And what do you ridiculous. do for that uh, for her? Uh, the same same things, you know, just like you look at look ahead at the new record, you see where she's at, and yeah, just trying to like with her, it's been a lot of strategy of like, okay, she she was her record was so big, like how do we roll this out? How do yeah. we start it? You know, what festival should we play? How do we position her on the bill to, to make the next record same level? Yeah, right, exactly. And with Courtney, I know you did a record that you were very hands on with. So with Courtney, uh, Courtney said. Courtney was, is always and will always be her own yeah. category. Yeah. So with Courtney, my friend Michael Beinhorn, who I told you about, is a producer. Is yeah. A, he's a genius producer. Yeah. He called me up and he said, you know, can you help Courtney? Yeah. And I was I was like, I don't know. Like, let me meet her. And she was <laughs> in, like, pretty bad shape. Right. And, uh, and we've become very friendly because, she, 
like you and I, she grew up in the eighties in that time. Yeah, she, like she was dancing at Jumbo's Clown Room, right? And playing, you know, hanging out with those bands. Like Celebrity Skin, the whole album came from Celebrity Skin, a band that I used to play with when I was in Electric Angels. <laughs> yeah. So we have like a real common thread, and right. she's super into music. Yeah. And and I think she likes the f- that I'm successful, and so I don't need. Her, I'm not like a hanger on with her. Yeah. So it's we've been doing we've been working on a book which I think is going to be really good. Uh huh. And uh, and I you know I'd love to make another record with her because she's. What in, was that last one that you did with her? Uh, Nobody's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. You like she, that record? I do. She wasn't in. She wasn't in retrospect. Yeah. I'm glad we made it because it was. Uh, because she had been trying to make it for eight years mm-hmm. and it just getting it finished was an accomplishment, but she wasn't in the right place. Yeah. I think she's in, she's in a much better place now. She's, she's awesome now. There's like good Courtney is, is awesome. And bad Courtney is like the worst person alive. So now that she's good Courtney, she's what you signed up for. Now getting more up to date. Uh, the last time we were out of touch for a while, yeah, a little health crisis. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, what what happened? Uh, you know, it felt like a giant was standing on my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was like, I think I I had never been in the hospital, not since I was born. Yeah. So it's like I think I need to go to the hospital. I go to the hospital and they're like, I think you might be having a heart attack. Holy shit! So. It was like a minor artery was blocked, so it wasn't like a right. triple bypass surgery or anything. But you know, so they they put you out. It wasn't pain; it was pressure. Yeah, weird. It's like crazy pressure. Weird. And so they put you out, and uh, it's really an interesting experience because they gave me, I think it's nitroglycerin, maybe, mm-hmm. and you just pass out immediately, and you're sort of awake but not really, and so people are yelling, like and I'm a like, roofie. yeah, I'm yeah. like. Am I dead? Like people are yelling around me, like maybe I'm dying. And then you start thinking about things like you know, like what's going to happen to my air miles? <laughs> you know, and you just go through all these like strange thoughts. Yeah, it's really like an interesting. Not process. none of them were like life flashing before your eyes. Did I do what I set out to do? None of that. It's like air miles or I had who's going to feed the dog? Minutia. Yeah. yeah, it was all that kind of stuff, huh. and it. And what you realize is like so it's, it's not your life that flashes before your eyes. It's like what you should, what you have to do tomorrow. Yeah, who's well, going to do thing. that? I was like, oh, shit. I hope I can get out of here tomorrow because like C is doing a TV in LA. I <laughs> right. need to be there. That yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Definitely all that. Were you afraid? Uh, probably. Yeah. So so they what they do? Put a stint in. Put a stint in, yeah. Yeah. I was there for a couple of days. I definitely didn't like being in there. And so when I got out, I started reading about stuff. And actually- Because uh, you're a vegetarian, lifelong vegetarian. Yeah, I was a lifelong vegetarian. Yeah. So my friend Russ Irwin, mm-hmm. who plays keyboards in Aerosmith, he's a great guy. He said, oh, my brother had that. He's like, you got to become a vegan. He's got, you got to read this guy Dean Ornish's book, and you got to. I know read Dean Ornish. This guy Caldwell Esselstyn. Read these books, and I started reading, and I realized that what happens when you're a vegetarian and not a vegan, yeah, is you overcompensate by eating too much dairy, yeah. too many carbs, yeah. too much sugar, yeah, 
it's all the things that lead to heart disease. Interesting. So, yeah, so I just switched to being a vegan. It's been amazing. You look great. Oh, thanks. Took yeah. off some weight. Yeah. You exercising now? Yeah, exercise, added exercise, stopped dairy, and it's it's been great. And like, I don't think everyone needs to do that. Right. But if you're if if you're unhealthy, you should do that because those are the th- it's very obvious. Like when I go to my doctor for the checkup every six months, you go to the heart specialist. He's like, "You should just be a poster boy. Whatever you're doing, like every all the cholesterol and all of the problems that you had when you came in are all gone." Yeah, and it's it's because like when you're a vegetarian, you overdo those things. You right. just do because because you're not cheese. eating correctly. Yeah, right. cheese. Yeah, it's and not, I would yeah sugar beans carbs yeah like pasta and but you, you do know. a little pasta i do a little but a very little yeah and you're, you've been with renee since i've known you so that's good yeah she's the best yeah and he like well I'm, I'm proud of you man it's very impressive yeah man i'm i'm very proud of you you're relieved yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no it's you know what it i is? remember that when i saw you and i finally kind of got out like when the the show this show yeah. started to get successful you're like you did it <laughs> You know what it is? It's well, you, you know, like how I knew it was successful is is I would be places. Yeah, you know, like I rem- the, the the really like there's always like that moment, the apex, the, like the 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 point of inflection, where so I'm I'm meeting with the head of Warner UK and I'm sitting in the waiting office and his assistant comes out and she's yeah. like, "Are you the John Daniel that knows Mark Maron?" <laughs> I was like, "Wow." <laughs> Yeah. Some, sometimes I'll listen to 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 you, and uh, and you'll be talking to a band about me, and I'll be like, "Hey, I'm right here. <laughs> What's going on?" <laughs> no, you know what? Like, you know what? Uh, you know, like we were saying before, it's like having your friends be successful is awesome. Yeah. And like so many of our, you know, n- the bands, but also like the producers and things, they're all fans of, of you. And what what's what's great about the way you did it. It's, and it's very punk rock. This mm-hmm. is like, to be successful, you can do it by any means necessary or on your own terms, right? right? And you did it on your own terms. And that's like, that's punk rock. Yeah, yeah. it was not by any means necessary. It was like, this is a, is a Hail Mary pass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's like, what's so awesome, though. <laughs> it is. It's like, it was a Hail Mary pass. I don't pass. know anything about that any means necessary business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it, it got close. <laughs> Well, thanks for talking, man. All right, yeah. It's great to see you. And and send me that record. All right. All right. right. Good. That was great. Uh, It's great. You just—it's great that you can if if you're hung in there, that you you just witness me catching up with an old buddy and also learning things about him I've never known after knowing him for years. And we used to talk all the time, but then I started to realize back in the day. I did most of the talking. That guy was at my my first wedding. Anyways, hope you like that. Thanks for listening. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs, the tour dates upcoming, and whatnot. Uh, no guitar. I'm in a hotel room. I'm in Tallahassee. I'm leaving Tallahassee. Enjoy your day as, uh, as best you can. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>